This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I want to talk politics for the first segment today. If you've been listening to the station all day, and I certainly hope you have been, I hope that's your regular activity. As I've said many times before, we will arrange, if you would like, for a welder to come to your house and actually weld the dial onto CHML and lock it in place. We do that. That's a service we offer here. Not really, but we will arrange it if you want. But we hope you've been listening all day. I hope you were listening because Doug Ford was chatting here on the station earlier today. And Kathleen Wynne is coming to Hamilton tomorrow. And so I wanted to chat a little bit about their two platforms right now. There's there's a couple of things, and, and certainly as we get further and further into this election, we are going to be chatting more and hearing more and trying to throw a little critical thinking onto these platforms. Because here's the thing. Every politician of every stripe, if they got their way, if the world was utopia for politicians of every single party, what you would do as a listener, as a citizen, as a consumer of political whatever, their goal, their dream would be that you would hear what they say that they're going to offer you and not really give it any kind of critical thought. Oh, free stuff. Wow, great. How are we going to pay for this? I don't care. I don't know. They said we're getting free stuff. Well, what are they going to cut if they say they're going to cut stuff? I don't know, but he's going to cut. That's great. Like, let's apply some critical thinking throughout the next whatever number of days it is until the election. Let us use our brains and ask some intelligent, hopefully, questions about all the parties across the spectrum. See, here's the thing. I, frankly, don't care if you like Kathleen Wynne or don't like Kathleen Wynne. I don't care if you like her policies. I don't care if you don't like her policies. I don't care if you like Doug Ford or don't like Doug Ford, like his policies or not. I don't care if you like Andrea Horvath or not. We are, I mean, I hope, the one thing I hope is that at least you will vote and be involved. But it's up to you. I'm not, my job is not to convince you. I'm hoping you will convince yourself by listening to me and to others and reading stuff and apply your intellect, not just be suckers who will listen to whatever or look for any shiny object that is dangled in front of you and decide, oh, I like that. I like that. I'm going to take that. I hope that you will engage in the process. That's what these elections are supposed to be about. Although politicians, as I say, given their opportunity, given their dream, would have you simply latch on to the first idea that you like, ignore everything else and just vote that way. Because the way that ideas are generally presented by politicians in election time are as glorious things that will fix everything. Well, if there's one thing we know about politics, there is no politician that can fix everything. In fact, you could argue, and I think you could make a reasonable case arguing that politicians basically are the human manifestation of the second law of thermodynamics. You know what that is? It's usually used when we're talking about physical things in the physical world. Everything goes from a state of order to a state of chaos. That is a physical law. It's also called entropy. Politicians are that. They take something that is generally orderly, begin applying their laws and their other things to it, and things eventually over a course of time devolve. So we get debt, we get cuts, we get this, we get that. Nothing is ever quite as promised. 
Nothing is his promise. So when you hear Doug Ford offer you something, I would encourage you to think critically. Okay, how will this work? How will this be done? And when Kathleen Wynne offers you shiny objects, how will this work? How will this be done? And Andrea Horvath, same thing. How exactly is all of this going to make things better? How are we going to actually do this in our society? How can this fly? Ask a lot of how questions. It's important. It is really important. Tomorrow, I don't doubt that when Kathleen Wynne is here, you will hear, if you are following along, if you're following the news, if you're at the event, I don't doubt that you're going to hear lots of things about how glorious Ontario will be under another four years of liberal reign. I know we heard that from Doug Ford today, not about liberal reign, about conservative reign. There is nothing that you will ever hear that will challenge the utopian view. So, when we come back after the break, that being the intro, and I'm not going to repeat that every time we talk about politics, I'm trying to set the stage because we're going to be doing this over the course of the election campaign season. We're going to be challenging some of the things they say. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. We are chatting about applying our brains to what politicians tell us. Don't just accept, don't overlook, don't take it face value. Think about some of these things. And I wanted to talk about two things today in this next few minutes. One of them is Doug Ford. Doug Ford was on here with Scott Thompson earlier today. And among other things they were talking about, one of the things was Hamilton's LRT. And in the discussion, Doug Ford explained that he would follow the will of the people. And if people in Hamilton want the LRT, it'll happen. And if they don't, the billion dollars that was going to go into the LRT will simply go into infrastructure elsewhere in Hamilton. Now, let's apply some brain to this for a minute. Let's apply some critical thinking. This may happen. Okay, this this could well happen. This could be the plan that is in fact in place, that when, let's say Doug Ford is elected, and then come fall when the, when the municipal election happens, and a new council gets together, and they vote, and because it's a new council, it would only have to be a simple majority to vote on the LRT, and let's say they say, mm, you know what, no, we're not going to do the LRT. Maybe Doug Ford and the liberal, and the per- conservatives, pardon me, say, okay, well then, here's a billion dollar check, you apply it to whatever infrastructure you want. Maybe that would happen. I'm skeptical. Here's why. Because we know from past experience that literally in the last 25, 30 years, maybe more than that, when did Bill Davis leave office? That's probably the last time. Every party that comes into power, whether it's, cons- whether it's provincial, whether it's federal, every party that comes into power, what's the first thing they say when it comes time to start fulfilling their promises? Oh, man, bad news. The books are way worse than they thought we thought they were. What the previous government told you? Oh, they were not even close to telling the truth. This is a disaster. This is a mess. We got no money for anything. Everything we promised, gone. I tend to think, I tend to believe, I tend to be skeptical of the fact that we would just have a billion dollars coming here. Maybe I'm wrong. But I would be skeptical of that. But let me then jump over, because that's, that's one thing. If you're, if, even if you are a Doug Ford supporter, I think that it's something that is a fair question to ask yourself. What do you think? Do you believe that will happen? 
But let me jump over for a second to Kathleen Wynne because there was a piece in the Financial Post today. It was written by an analyst at the C.D. Howe Institute. And I got to tell you, uh, if you... If you have any capacity for financial fear, this will strike it into you. Because what this person was basically doing, leaving aside, now some will argue that the C.D. Howe Institute is a right-wing group, whatever else, he was looking at the dollars. Pretty hard, I think it's pretty hard most of the time to get all political with numbers. You can do it for sure, but in this case, he was looking at the numbers. And basically what he pointed out is that because of a number of situations that are going on, and the added cost to our debt that would be increased by Kathleen Wynne's government if they are reelected with all the things they promised, that just the interest payments on our debt, which is 320-something billion dollars right now, just the interest payments alone, the additional interest payments, we're already paying $12 billion roughly a year. We would go up another $2 billion a year just in interest payments by 2021 which is, as this person writes, all the tax revenues in the province of Ontario from alcohol and tobacco. So all, every dollar we bring in from alcohol and tobacco would go into just covering that cost. Now, hopefully, they say, hopefully, everybody in the province starts to smoke dope and the tax dollars go up from that. We may have other things we have to pay for if that's the case. Anyway, it moves along. Because... By 2050, so 30 years from now, only 30 years from now, when you look at what the debt would be and you assume that at some point along the way there may be increased interest rates or a deficit or a, 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 a recession or anything like that, Ontario would be paying 22% of our revenues into just paying interest. 22% of every dollar that... Ontario generated would be going into simply paying the interest on our debt. Now you can imagine if we suddenly go from 8% where we are right now, which is still a very high amount. If you now go up to 22%, it leaves you in a spot. You can either then cut every program pretty much or many programs or taxes are going to go through the roof. Can you imagine what the cost is going to be to the average person if suddenly we are now paying that part, that amount in interest? So think for a second of your kids because it probably won't affect you. Think of your kids for a second and what they will be left with. Plus, on top of everything else, we are now getting older. That's not even factoring in the increased cost of health care that is probably going to be applied to us. So when, when I mentioned Doug Ford, when Kathleen Wynne tells you about how we've got to do all this stuff, everything's free, we've got to do all this stuff to make Ontario better, someone, I would love someone to stand up and say, how is it going to be better 20 years from now when you leave this for our kids and for our grandkids? How exactly are they going to pay for anything? And you know what the answer is going to be? A bunch of nothing because there is no answer for this. It'll be a, 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 a blah, 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 blah that won't actually mean anything. Use your discretion, your power of critical thinking when you listen to politicians. Nothing is free. Not everything gets better. There's always a cost. What is the cost? Who's paying for the cost? And when is that bill going to come due? We're going to talk about this through the course of the election. But please, all I'm asking you tonight, do not simply buy into every single thing that every single politician tells you. Think about it. 
think about it, think critically about it and decide whether you can accept what they're telling you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Don't know if you know this if you're living in the city of Hamilton. This is information that you can use that will save you some cash. I'm going to give you something right now that is going to save you money down the road potentially. If you injure a worm, not a woman, a worm, if you injure a worm in a public park, that could cost you 50 bucks. Even if you attempt to kill a worm. That's bylaw 133, uh, section 10A in the bylaw. If you annoy a person in a public park, that's a fine too. You could be on the hook for 75 bucks. If you feed birds in a public park, you could be on the hook for a $50 fine. It goes on and on and on. Hamilton has some rather strange bylaws, I got to tell you. Now, some of them make a lot of sense. Some of them, uh, wow, they are head scratchers. And you start to wonder, at least I do, as you look down this list, how exactly did these come to be? Because bylaws don't just happen. They require someone to think that they need to have a law. Then it has to be a motion. It has to be written up. Then it has to be discussed. Then it has to be voted on before it comes into law. And yet a lot of these things, all these things at one time or another, went through that process. Well, Kara Bunn is the parks manager for the city of Hamilton. She joins us now. Kara, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Uh, I I was going through this list, and I I must tell you, um, there are many things in here that make an awful lot of good sense. Uh, You can't live in a park. I think that most most people would probably find that would be a probably good thing, not to just having thousands of squatters. Um, You can't loiter around a bathroom. I think people would probably feel safer by knowing that people aren't just going to be hanging around bathrooms being creepy. Um, You can't, I don't know, pick up... You can't bring heavy machinery in and just start digging up a park. I think that makes a lot of sense. But there are some of the bylaws that are in your parks area that are really strange. The purpose of the bylaws are to protect the parkland, the environment, and park users. So I think you need to look at them all in context and understand potentially there was a reason for putting that into the bylaw. And I want to go through a bunch of them with you in just a moment. Did you ever, though, when you go through this list, and I'm sure you're familiar with most of these, when you went through these the first time and started looking at these bylaws, until you understood what they existed for, did you look at a few of them and say, how in the world did that ever become a law? Absolutely. Some of them seem very strange. Um, You know, the worm one, for instance, is definitely strange. But then when you start to ask around and you understand the history of it, you realize, okay, that's why we put that in there. (laughs) Okay, well, let's go to that one first, because that really does stand out as one of the odder bylaws that we have in the city of Hamilton. And it's not just one. There are actually six separate bylaws that refer to the health and welfare of worm. Uh, if you kill a worm in a park, if you attempt to kill a worm in a park, so there's a, there's worm murder and there's attempted worm murder. If you maim a worm in a park, if you injure a worm in a park, if you trap a worm in a park, or if you remove or disturb any worm in a park. I'm assuming when they say disturb, it means physically, not by walking up and waking them up from their slumber. Um, <laughs> but there are six worm bylaws. Why do we need six worm bylaws? So it's not actually six worm bylaws. It's actually written that all together. So it's grouped as not killing, attempting to kill, maim, injure, trap, remove, or disturb any animal, bird, waterfowl, worms, or other wildlife. 
Okay. So it's all grouped together. Um, the reason the worms are in there is because we actually had some businesses harvesting dewworms from our parks and golf courses. Worms didn't fall within the, the description of animal, bird, or waterfowl, so that got added in. Okay. So now would that mean that potentially if I was, let's say I was going to go fishing somewhere. Now I know fishing is also in this bylaw, but if I was legally mm-hmm. fishing and I put a worm on my hook, would that be against the bylaw? I think you need to look at it from the severity of the incident. We're not going to go after you for one worm, or if um, a child picks up a worm, they're not getting handed a ticket. It's the people that come in and do damage to the environment or to the wildlife in general. So I, I'm assuming, and again, we're going to go through a bunch of these because there are some that are uh, that, that do require or could use some explanation. These are all... I would have guessed that every single bylaw in here is a judgment call that you can overlook for minor infractions. It's when someone does something significant that it just gives you the opportunity to crack down. That's correct. And, you know, a lot of this is complaint-driven, or um, we'd have to look at the actual impact. I mean, if you stepped on a worm, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's an accident. If you're purposely killing all the worms in a park... It's a different story. Now, that said, we do know there are people around town who love to call bylaw for stuff. I'm sure someone has called in before to say someone has stepped on a worm or has accidentally done <laughs> one of these things. I'm, I am I, mean, uh, maybe I'd be surprised if not, but I know that, I mean, I've t- heard stories of bylaw callers before, sticklers for the rules. I'm sure stuff has happened. There are definitely some sticklers for the rules. <laughs> and, I mean, just before we get to them, what do you say when there's a stickler? Because I'm sure there are people who call in and they want the bylaw office, whether it's you or Parks or whomever, to crack down on something that they see. I mean, are there times you just have to say, take a breath and move along? We try to explain the situation and have them look at the, uh, the other side of the story so that they understand why something might be happening. Um, most of those calls do go to bylaw or as a parks person, we'll pass it on to bylaw to deal with. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Kara Bunn, who is the Hamilton Parks Manager, joins us as we chat about this. Okay, Kara, so let's go through some of these things, and maybe you can offer some explanations or some descriptions of what the different bylaws actually would mean, because we'll, we'll start with Section 5C. Now, I think it makes sense that it says you can't spy on another person in the park. I think that probably a lot of us would be pleased by that, that you can't be doing that. Uh, you can't accost another person in the park. That's that's a good one. Uh, now it gets a little more obtuse, though. You can't frighten another person, or you can't annoy another person in the park. How would it legally, because there's a lot of people that annoy a lot of people, <laughs> what would the definition, the legal definition of annoying be? I'm not sure what the legal definition would be, but um, again, I think it w- you'd have to look at it in context and determine how severe it was. Um, you know, was, were the police involved at this point? Um, some people find, you know, the sound of children laughing annoying. Exactly. That doesn't yeah. mean we're going to <laughs> charge the children. Keep those kids quiet in the park. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, just down later, and here's where here's why part of this becomes so so funny when you read these things because there's one that you know as I say annoying another person it sounds sort of generic or whatever and just a few later possession of an axe or a bow and arrow in the park or a firearm well you know that oh, that makes a lot of sense we don't want people walking around with an axe um, okay here's what I don't understand uh, section eight a it is illegal it's a fifty dollar fine if you climb or descend equipment in a park aren't 
the park equipment there to be climbed or descended? No, that I mean, that refers more to something that isn't in place for climbing, specifically for climbing. Okay. Um, if we had um, parks equipment, something to uh, maintain the park, or there were uh, shoring devices or something like that, we wouldn't want anybody climbing on them. Okay, so parks equipment, not like playground equipment. It doesn't apply to playground. Okay, equipment. well, that would that would so, be a very clumsy one if it did, because... Exactly, and the, and the bylaw does say this prohibits does not prohibit um, or apply to structures designed, intended, or designated. Okay. Uh, Section 9E, it is a $50 fine if you release any balloons in a park. Yes. So um, the actual bylaw says that you can release nine balloons every 24 hours, which is odd. (laughs) That Um, is a little specific. Absolutely. But that was put in place because um, for children's parties, if um, a small gathering had some balloons and balloons were accidentally released, okay. um, you know, we wouldn't <laughs> charge them for that. <laughs> but we don't want balloons released because they do actually um, harm wildlife. All right. You don't want the opening ceremonies of the Olympics up at Victoria Park somewhere. Exactly. Uh, okay. We covered the worm area in great depth. Those are all, by the mm-hmm. way, $50 fines if you are a worm massacrist. Uh, if you feed a bird in a park, it's $50. Now, I've seen people feed birds in the park. Are we really wanting people not to throw breadcrumbs to any of the pigeons, or is there something else to this? Yeah, birds can become a nuisance if we feed them, um, and a lot of the birds, especially down at the, the harbor areas and stuff, are a nuisance, and their feces have been um, causing um, E. coli levels to rise in the water. So we don't want a lot of them hanging around. Okay, so we really don't. That, I mean, that's the, there is a reason for this. Uh, section 12, I'm assuming that when you have a, a bylaw here for $75 fine for grooming on parkland, you're talking about grooming the grass, not grooming yourself. That's correct. <laughs> that, again, you know, put on lipstick and it's a fine if you do it in the park. We want people not to look <laughs> their best when they're in the park. Uh, 15A, $75 fine if you have a picnic in a park or have a public meeting in a park. Now, the picnic in a park one is strange because lots of people go and take their lunch to the park. First of all, is there a legal yeah. definition of picnic and why would this be there? So that's, it actually reads that unless authorized by permit, um, you shall not hold a picnic, public meeting or other organized gathering or event of more than 20 persons. So that is just to trigger, if you have a party of more than 20, it may interfere with others' enjoyment of the park, and you may need to look at a special events permit. All right, what else do we have here? Oh, here's one that I, um, here's one that I liked, is that while operating or utilizing, uh, this is 28.4, while operating or utilizing a scooter, so one of those people who's driving one of their electric scooters, they have to give an audible warning when passing somebody. So I guess shout out that so they don't step in the way and overtake them. It makes some sense. Mm-hmm. I've just never actually seen that happen. I've, I don't know if that's a common courtesy for scooter life, but um, that's a $75 fine. Do we, has that ever been, do you know if that's ever actually? It has been actually, an issue, actually. We've, we've had a lot of issues with some of our multi-use trails where there's different levels of um, passive enjoyment on the trail. So, uh, people who are walking with children or people on, um, bicycles or scooters are all traveling at different paces. And sometimes there's a conflict. All right. We only have time for one more and I'll do this one. Uh, 39, three, 
Uh, you are. It's a seventy-five dollar fine if you hitch or fasten your horse at any place in the park. <laughs> Was this, this has to be from about the nineteen hundreds, correct? This is not something I new. I believe it's a, a carryover from when we allowed <laughs> people to ride horses in parks. Yeah. Because there's other things in here about livestock and and uh, it, I would encourage people to. Read. It is a fascinating document. There's a lot of um, uh, no operating fixed wing aircraft in park. I don't know if that's ever happened before. It's happened. Has it? Yeah, we've had requests for helicopters to land. We've had oh, okay. people um, using gliders off of the escarpment. I It is a fascinating document. Kara Bunn, Hamilton Parks Manager, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thanks. Anytime. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. We do something once a week that we're doing right now. It is called Ben's Story of the Day. Ben is the guy who presses the buttons and makes the music go and answers the phones and does everything else. And once a week, I bring in a selection of the most ridiculous, most ludicrous stories from around the world, all true, and Ben gets to decide which one is his story of the day. Now, you can also vote on this. You can send me a note at radley at 900chml.com with your choice of which you think would be your story of the day. But here we go. Story number uno. This comes to us from Easter Sunday in Phoenix, Arizona. A 40-year-old mother was rounding up her family to head off to church for Easter Sunday morning. Because that's what you do. But her 17-year-old son was a little tired. He'd, I guess he'd had a rough night the night before. You know, he's 17. It's tough to get out of bed. The best of times... And he wasn't really having any of the whole Easter Sunday getting up early to go to church kind of thing. And so mom, having no ability to rouse her son from bed, resorted to what all good mothers eventually do to get their sons, their teenage boys out of bed. She tasered him. (laughs) Nothing says get up for worship on Sunday morning at church like being tasered. (laughs) On Easter Sunday. Hey, welcome. It's the Easter Bunny. So she is now um, she is now charged, uh, as you could probably imagine. She's arrested on one count of child abuse. <laughs> it doesn't say whether she actually made it to church or whether her son did. Uh, I'm guessing probably he only made it to church if they had chapel in the hospital somewhere. Anyway, that is story number one. The Phoenix mother who decided to get her son out to bed by uh, using the taser. Story number two. Option two for Ben's story of the week. A Massachusetts woman is suing because she rents her house. She, she, I guess every year she puts her house up. She goes away for a little while and puts her house up for rent. And someone rented it this year, this time. Uh, she has since discovered when she got home that the person who rented it, to which she had no idea what was going to be going on, used it for the entire month she was gone as a location center for pornographic videos. <laughs> Her entire house, she says every single room was used for inappropriate purposes. Her entire house now has become a porn studio. She's not happy about this. I think a lot of people probably would share that. I I, I have to believe that most people, if they came home thinking they had rented their house out to a nice couple and then found out that what it was actually being used for was to film adult entertainment, uh, I would think that uh, that would probably not be good. Especially, and here's where things get really weird, apparently some of her family pictures are now in the background of some of these scenes. 
<laughs> not a good idea. That's that's just that's just bad on the producers. You got to take away that stuff. So there's item number two, story number two, and third option in the Ben story of the week, which you can choose which one you like as well. In Colorado, well, this story is actually just kind of sad. There was a mix-up of sorts, and a an estate sale was being held where all the contents of a home, I think from reading the story, I think someone had finally passed away, and so their family had decided to hold an estate sale to just take buy, take whatever. I don't know if it was buying or taking. Anyway, uh, everything in the house was up for grabs. Just show up and take what you want to take and leave some money at the door or something like that. However, it seems that somehow, whether an ad or a word of mouth or something, they put the wrong address <laughs> down. And more unfortunately, the address that was listed, the person when they left the house had left the door unlocked. <laughs> So when they came home several hours later, there were dozens of people walking out of the house carrying all their earthly belongings, televisions, toilet paper, lights, everything that was in the house was pretty much gone. Every belonging this person had, except for their dog and their cat, had been removed from the house. I would have thought the dog and the cat would have been a tip-off that maybe someone was still living there. But they're now asking politely if the people who ransacked their home unwittingly would please return their items because there's nothing left in their house. Meanwhile, the house that was supposed to have stuff taken out so they could sell it, it's still loaded with all of its belongings. Nobody would went there. Anyway, Ben, I will leave it with you. Which is your story of the day today? Would it be the mother who tasered her teenage son to get him out of bed for Easter Sunday morning church service? Would it be the woman suing the people who rented her home and turned it into a porn studio? Or would it be the misunderstanding that led to a Colorado home being completely ransacked in a wrong address put down for an estate sale. I'm still <laughs> liking the one about the lady who tased her son because that sounds like something my mom would do to me. <laughs> I hope your mom doesn't actually have a taser in the house. But... Not that I know of. Well, <laughs> <laughs> But I'm going to have to say the uh, Colorado home that happened to lose their worldly belongings because someone else made a mistake. Yeah, that's a uh, that that is that is a rough one. Imagine if you came home and people were just walking out of your house calmly, not, like not even trying to loot the place. Just hey, it's all free. Come on in, take some. And that was your yes. Yeah, so anyway, there's your story there. What would be yours, Radley at nine hundred chml dot com? Which of those would you vote for as your story of the day? I would love to hear from you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on nine hundred chml. The Masters is this weekend coming up. It is down at Augusta National. I'm sure if you're if you're a golf fan, I don't, there's nothing I can tell you about the Masters that you don't already know. It is the biggest tournament in North America. It is on the one golf course that everybody wants to play. Everybody wants to see. I I was down there last year. Mackenzie Hughes, Hamilton golfer, had a, qualified last year, and he was playing there last year. And I got to tell you, more people than anything I've probably ever done in my job. More people were saying, holy cow, you get to go to Augusta? You get to go see the Masters? Yeah, it it is the dream place for golfers to go to. 
to the point that when I went down there, I had more orders from the gift shop for people to bring back hats or shirts or flags or whatever else. Everybody loves Augusta. Well, why do I make such a big deal about this? Luke Delgobble is a Font Hill kid. He's a 15-year-old. He's just turned 15. It's remarkable. He just, as I said a moment ago, got to compete at the drive chip and putt competition at Augusta National where they play the Masters. Talk about a dream. He joins me now. Luke, congratulations. Great job. Thank you, Scott. You um you did really, really, really well. I know that this whole thing started from thousands of people across North America. You finished fifth overall. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm really happy to to have gone and just had had a blast the whole whole weekend. I watched a little bit of it, and I watched some uh, clips that I then saw later on on Twitter and things like that. And I don't. Are you pretty? Are you a pretty calm guy? Because there were a lot of people standing around watching you. Uh, when I'm golfing by myself, I'm usually pretty calm. But that changes when there are are people around. Um, yeah, I was a little bit nervous when when I got up there. <laughs> I would think so because there were there were a lot of people. Is it hard when you're in that position to just keep your head down and look at the ball and not notice how many people are standing around watching? Uh, to be honest, I tried not to look at the people, but. Um, I was catching glimpses of them, <laughs> but other than that, um, just just the knees were shaking a little bit. I am absolutely sure. So tell me about Augusta, first of all, because most people listening, even if they're golf fans and they've dreamed about going to Augusta, let alone playing at Augusta, they have this image in their mind that it is the perfect place to play golf. Is it? Um. I would say so, yeah. It's the best place I've ever been. Um, but if if you're just watching on TV, one thing that I noticed was um, the golf course looks a lot different uh, when you see it in person. Um, in what way, Luke? A lot more slopes. Whole one on TV looks relatively flat, but there's probably a 20-yard drop just off their tee box, and then it goes back up. Did you get a chance? Now you were, and I want to talk about your competition. But did you get a chance to walk the course and to go to Amen Corner and see some practice rounds or something like that? Did you get to explore it a bit? Yeah, I walked it on the Monday with a couple friends of mine from the area here in Niagara. So I had a lot of fun doing that as well. And and is it something that you? Because you got to play. Were you on the on the par three course there on the short course? Um, did I play on there? Well, is that where the where was the drive chip and putt competition? So the drive was on um, like the range where the players were. So they had the range split up, and, and PGA Tour players were actually hitting on the other side. So it was kind of cool to watch them and watch everyone else. So that's where the drive was. The chip was on one of their practice facilities, and then the putt was held on the 18th green. Oh, oh, on the 18th green. Yeah. Wow. And you've, I mean, you've watched before, so you know where Sergio Garcia hit that putt last year. You're probably checking out all those spots and realizing the the history that's happened on that green while you were being able to hit there. Yeah. Um, obviously, everybody who has to win that, everyone who wins that tournament has to go through that that hole in that green at some point. Um, so it was kind of cool to think that. I was putting on the same place as yeah. they did. Yeah, and, and again, it's such a dream for people because so few people ever get that opportunity to do it. It's just it's such a cool thing to be able to say you've done. I was getting excited months leading up before. I bet. 
And when you were at the driving range, when now you weren't on the range, you were actually competing, but did you get a chance either then or later on, did you get a chance to meet any of the pros? Um, a couple of guys actually came out while the competition was going on. So um, Bryson DeChambeau walked out, said hi to everybody. So I thought that was really nice. I guess he wants to grow the game just as much as everyone else does and took the time to come and say hi. We are chatting with Luke Delgabo, who is from Font Hill, just down the road, and he is just back from Augusta National, which uh, it, it just it sounds so strange to say for a 15-year-old kid to get that chance to do it, but he's just back from the drive, putt and chip, or drive chip and putt competition, finished fifth overall, which is an unbelievable finish. How long ago did you start golfing? Um, three years ago. I'm headed into my fourth season. Which, again, is going to make some people a little bit crazy that you are so good already that you get this opportunity. How'd you get into the game? Went out with a friend. Um, we played at a nearby course, and I loved it ever since. And that from that first time on, you just wanted to be doing it? Pretty much. Okay, so you spend, I know you've spent hours and hours and hours on the course. I know that uh, I've read some stories that, you know, basically you're, you're there from dawn till dusk through the summer, which uh, you're going to get better when you do that. How did you decide to enter this tournament that would have given you this chance? My coach at the time recommended it, and then um, I watched it on TV and said, might as well give it a shot. Um, my mom registered me and then it was kind of off. I went from there. Okay. Now when you start, there are thousands of other kids around North America that are trying to qualify for this. So this is a multi-step process, right? Before you go to Augusta, you have to win or do very well at several steps along the way. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Where was your first one? Where was the first step? Fox Valley. So. Which is where? Five minutes from the... Um, Buffalo border. Okay. And so for you to be able to, what, what did you have to do? Did you have to win that one or finish top two or three to get through? Um, you had to finish top three to get through and I came third in that one. Okay. What was the experience like of that? Had you, had you, I know you've told me before that you didn't really expect to win. What did you think you could do there? Um, I knew I could finish top three at the first one. It was definitely um, an option. I just had to go and I, I just had to do pretty well to, to finish top three. I didn't, I was competing against other kids and I didn't know how well they were going to do. So I just figured I, all I could do is go out there and, and try my best and hopefully everything went my way. And, um, it ended up going that way. And I finished third there and moved on. Okay. So you get to go on to stage number two and what did you have to do at stage? Did you have to finish top three again for stage number two? Um, this one, this time you had to finish top two. Okay. And you finished what? I won that. Wow. Okay. And that puts you on to stage three. We, we have another stage before Augusta, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So a stage three. And by the way, the field is getting obviously smaller and smaller. And I would assume then, Luke, that also the level of golfers that are there is better and better. Your competition is getting stiffer and stiffer. Correct. Yeah. And so what happens at the third one? You had to finish top two again? Uh, this time you had to win it. You had to win it. Okay. And obviously you won it because you went to Augusta. Yep. 
Do you ever surprise yourself? Because you haven't been golfing all that long when you're doing, and I'm sure some of the people who were competing against you have golfed a lot longer than you. Uh, do you ever surprise yourself when you do well? Um, it's been a gradual progression. I've gotten better as it's gone through. I think the only time that I've been surprised that I've done really well was at the beginning of this season. Um, well, beginning of last season, the 2017 season, when I started to um, kind of compete. I was in the in the run for more titles, I guess you could call it, and um, it became a little bit not easier, but I was I was in the run more often than not. Okay, and so now you get to Augusta, and this is called the Drive, Chip, and Putt competition. So explain what happens. How does the Drive, because it's, it's a skills competition. It's not a full round of golf. You're doing a skills competition, which each of those three things. How does the Drive part of this work? How do you either get points or get ranked or anything else? How does that work? Um, so at Augusta, um, you have to, you get two balls, and your best ball is what they count. So if you hit your first one, if you miss the grid, which is 40 yards in width, if you miss that, it doesn't count. They don't even bother measuring it. And then you're on to your last ball, which actually happened to me. I just missed the grid by what looked like two yards from where I was. And then, so I missed it left, so I hit a little bit of a cut. And then on the next one, I hit it down the middle. So they took that ball. And... Um, that that ball was my best one because the other one went out of bounds. And then you're you get points based on how you do compared to the other kids. When you miss that first one and all the pressure, because if you don't hit the second one now, you're you'll still go on, but you're basically done. Uh, it, were you feeling the pressure for that second one to make sure that it was straight? Um, I knew what I did wrong on the first one. I came a little bit over the top, but um, something that I do when I hit shots off in each direction would, I just take a little bit longer in my rehearsal swing and make sure that my takeaway is is, um, more on swing, on plane, uh, rather than outside or across the plane. So... I was definitely definitely feeling a little bit of pressure, but I knew what I did wrong, and I said to myself, I'm not missing it left again. If I miss it right, it's not left. So if I miss it right, I was going to be uh, a little disappointed, but not. I wouldn't have made the same mistake twice. So I knew that I had to hit a little bit more of a draw, and I just, I guess, equaled it out and pretty much hit the straightest shot I've ever seen. Well, that's, that, okay, that's good. And so now you get to the chip. How does the chip competition work? Um, it's a bullseye. You get two shots. They take both shots, add them up, add the distance away from the hole up, and then compare your distance against the field, and then you're given points based on that. And, how, by the, and so where were you ranked, by the way, after the drive? Were you in good position? Um. I was leading the drive until the not, until the last guy went, and then he just squeaked it past me, so I was in second place uh, going into the chipping. Okay, and how did you do in the chipping? Not as good as in the driving, but nonetheless, I still hit a really good chip shot. So my first chip shot went to like a foot, foot and a half, um, 
really good. And then my second, I actually hit the second one better. It just landed on a bit of an upslope, kind of stopped, and then um, came up like eight feet short. So, all right, all right. And so now you get to the putting, and how does the putting work? How many putts do you get? Uh, you get two putts, one from 30 feet and one from 15 feet, and then they take your two distances away, combine them, and once again, you get points based on how the field does. Okay, now how was the 30-footer? It was um, a lot faster than I expected, and I just hit it. What I thought was okay, but it just went six feet past the hole. But the 15-foot putt, uh, this is the one that I that you can people can find on YouTube and they can find on Twitter. 15 was a little bit of magic for you on the 18th green at Augusta. Um, yeah, so off that 30-footer that went a little ways past, I was kind of, I knew I wasn't going to win now, so I said, don't leave this one short. Um, I didn't think I was going to leave it short, but I picked my line, and on downhill putts, especially at Augusta, where those greens are just perfect, um, just a lot of people would say, get it going on your line, which is exactly what I did, and it found the middle of the cup, thankfully, and I was really happy after that. Yeah, there was a good fist pump by you. Yeah. Uh, you were, it was pretty exciting when you did it, because uh, you know what? You've probably heard people talk about the roars at Augusta, the Augusta roar that you get when you can hear around the course during the tournament, when you can, if something happens on one hole, people are all the way around the course can hear that. You got to have one of those. You got to have one of those Augusta roars. A little bit, yeah. I, I've, I, I told my friends that were down there um, that they didn't make a putt on, on 18th green. To a Sunday pin, and they were getting like I just kept saying it, and it was something that I won't, won't. I'll, I'll eventually stop saying it, but it'll. I'll have it for the rest of my life. Absolutely, you will. Now, just before I let you go, Luke, how do they treat you down there? Like, do do you just show up that morning and walk from your car, grab your clubs from the trunk, and just walk right onto the course and just play, or do you get to have some of the Augusta experience? Um. They treated me like pretty much a, a pro from what I saw. They picked us up from the hotel um, an hour before, which was the time we were given. And then we um, got van. So they drove us down the Magnolia Lane, which is a, a place that not many people no. to go down. Only the former champions. Yeah. So we got to go down there. Uh, which was pretty cool. Saw the, saw the uh, founder circle, which is that little circle of grass with the master's logo and the flags. And then from there, they took us to like around around the bend area, and uh, there was three people waiting there. Uh, not entirely sure their names, but they had green jackets. They all said hi. And uh, from there, we went to the chipping green. They had it all set up. Everything was pristine, perfect, and uh, in really good shape. So they, they knew we were coming, and they treated us amazing. Did you, uh, did you bring home anything? Did you guys clean out the gift shop, as everyone else seems to do? Uh, we cleaned 
maybe the tip of the iceberg. Because <laughs> they're always restocking the shelves. But yeah, we got some souvenirs. Luke Delgabo from Font Hill. Listen, it, it is an experience of a lifetime. As you say, you're never going to forget as long as you live hitting that 15-foot putt on 18 at Augusta. I think there are thousands, millions of people who wish they were able to have the chance to do that, Luke, and you got to do it, and uh, what a great moment. And listen, congratulations, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Scott. That is Luke Delgabo. You, um, I don't know if you're going to hear his name down the road, but it would not shock me. Three years in to golfing, and he's already playing at Augusta in this. And as I say, you can go and find it online. It, it His last name is D-E-L-G-O-B-B-O. And if you look on Twitter and on Facebook, I'm sure on Facebook, just do a search. Just type it into Google, Luke Delgabo. You will see his 15-foot putt on the 18th at Augusta. And again, if you are a golfer, a golf fan, a golf aficionado, even a casual golf fan, you have probably thought about, I want to go to Augusta for the opportunity to drain a 15 foot putt on the green that all the guys who win the green jackets have to finish on. And a few, not very many have hit a putt that long to win on a Sunday. He got to do it. That's very, very cool. Good for him. Great story. Amazing that he was able to have that moment. And again, he'll never, ever, ever, ever forget that. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.